you have your Bible, please turn with me to the 12th chapter of Romans. I consider it a blessed thing that you get to come to church most Sundays and don't have to worry at all where we are going to be preaching. Because you already know. We stay in books of the Bible until they are finished. Because we believe that God gave us His Word to be preached entirely. And that all of God's Word is profitable. And the best way to know it and to understand it is to preach it in the manner which God has gave it to us. So we have been in Luke for some time. Took a brief break last week on Christmas to see the glorious reality of why Christ came. That Jesus, the greatest Savior, came to provide the greatest salvation, even to the greatest of sinners. We're going to spend one more week away from Luke. We'll kick back off next week. Pastor Freddie will be preaching there next week. I have made it a point here at Hillside for some time, pretty much since I've been the pastor here, to preach a New Year's sermon, to set our hearts upon a focus for that year. And the reason why I, I did that is not to be cliche. I, if you know anything about me, you know I hate cliche. Otherwise, I would have named the title of this sermon, New Year, Same God. But I chose not to do that. The reason why I have preached New Year's sermons and I have preached Advent sermons is because in the Bible there is a clear biblical precedence to usher in new seasons, new celebrations with a word from the Lord. Now, this word is not from me, it's from God. It's from His word. But it is to set the hearts of God's people towards the glorious realities of God, that it might move them to celebration of the newness of things to come, whether it was a new harvest, a new season, a new celebration, a new child. Our hearts should be moved to celebrate the one who gives them, God himself. And I've chosen to use these New Year sermons as an opportunity to set our hearts upon a greater resolve to be for that year. Those New Year sermons are, are meant to fix our hearts, to set our resolve, to, to firmly ground our minds and our thoughts and our actions to greater living for God. It is not to say that in 2024, my call will not for you to be consecrated unto thee. You can do something different. No. The goal is to put your heart so set upon this in 2023 that from every year for the rest of your life, this is a set reality for you. This is a big year for Hillside. This year will mark our 50th anniversary as a church. It's exciting. Originally planted here is O'Malley Road Baptist Church back in 1973 for the purpose of being a mission. Nary Church to the hillside of Anchorage. A light on the hill. Brothers and sisters, I don't believe that mission has died. That vision has not died. And it will not die with me. 
or with Pastor Freddie or anyone else who shall ever lead this, lead this church. But in order for us to be a light of Christ, brothers and sisters, we must look like Him. We must look like Him. And I don't believe there's any better way to set our hearts upon what it is to look like Christ than the 12th chapter of Romans. What does a life look like that is consecrated to God, consecrated to Christ? And I think Paul gives us a perfect picture of it in the 12th chapter. For our opening reading, we're just going to look at the first verse. We will preach every verse today of Revelation 12. Hold on. Right? I know you're thinking, Lord, help us. And you're right. Every verse in this chapter deserves a sermon in and of itself. So hear me when I say one day we will preach through Romans and you will get one of those sermons on each of these things. But today, I believe that the Lord will give us enough to live a life consecrated to him. We are living sacrifices. So the question is, is what resolutions should living sacrifices set? I think Romans 12 gives that to us today. So. Let's look at the first verse of Romans 12, as we will look at it all in its entirety throughout. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. Those words which we sang just a few moments ago were written by Francis Habergale in 1874. Frances was a frail English woman who spent her entire life suffering extremely poor bouts of health. One of the interesting things that you see when you read the diaries and the pictures of the saints of old is it seems almost to a number that each and every one of them suffered with bouts of something. Many of you have heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London preacher. The prince of preachers, as he is called. I have never, ever read anyone who preaches the gospel more clearly, more proud, profoundly, more boldly, more joyfully. And I have never read someone's diaries who suffered from depression more than Charles Hadley's Virgin. Francis Abigail was just had a life full of poor health. She would end up dying at the age of 43. Her whole life she struggled and suffered with health. Yet in the midst of this suffering and this poor illness and these constant illnesses and, and, and poor health, she wrote over 71 hymns. And just as we opened with our call to worship, even in the darkest hour, he's worthy of praise. Even in lamentations, we find praise. Yet though she was physically frail, spiritually, she was bold. Habergale had a bold passion to see souls not only come to Christ, 
but to be enraptured into the glory of who he was. To have lives overflowing in praise and service to the king, which is why she wrote hymns. She didn't want to see Christians come to, be, come to be saved. She wanted them to live a life of the, the glory and praise and wonders of the glory of the king that has saved them. One night after seeing a number of her friends that she had prayed for over and over again. And spoke to over and over again with the hopes that they would come to salvation one night. All of them. A single event, a party that they had gathered for, received Jesus. She had been praying for these friends for years, speaking to them the years that they might come to Christ. She was so moved by the event, she couldn't sleep that night because of the glories of what Christ had done. And she wrote that song. That's what she did that night. She wrote, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. She wrote of that night when she wrote this hymn, quote, after seeing his mighty hand and faithfulness to save those sinners which had fled from him at every turn and his great mercy to answer my prayers that he might do so. All I wanted to do was more for him. To give more for Him. To be more for Him. That He might use every part of me till my dying breath for His great glory. End quote. That's the heart behind that song that you saw. My question for you today is, was that your heart? Was that your heart when you sing it? Or do you just sing it to sing it? Do you just go through the motions when you come here? My friends, any hymn written with the heart of Christ behind it is is a good one. You may not like the music instrumentation behind it. But don't you ever call, call words that are given praise to God bad. Don't you ever call a song written for Christ boring. That says more about your heart than it does the song. She originally titled this work a poem of consecration. Now you may ask, what in the world does consecrated mean, Blake? Good question. To be consecrated means to be set apart entirely for a divine purpose. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he was consecrating the temple. When prophets were anointed with oil, they were consecrated for service. This is why kings were anointed with oil. They were consecrated that the entirety of their kingship should be done entirely for a divine purpose, for service to the Lord. So when you were anointed by the Holy Spirit in your new birth, what do you think that meant? It meant... That you were to be consecrated, all of you set apart entirely for the work of God. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, no matter your location or your calling. From preacher to housewife to janitor to everything else in between, whatever your vocation is. You are called to be set apart for a divine purpose. Consecrated unto the Lord. When she wrote and we sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. 
What she and we are saying is, Lord, take every part of me, all of my being, and use it for the purposes of your glory. I want all of me to reflect you. I want all of me to magnify you, to make much of you. Every part of me, I want you to be seen through it. I want to glorify you in my work, my home, my marriage, my parenting, my friendships, my outreach, my service, my compassion, my love, my forgiveness. I want every part of me to reflect much of you. I want there to be none of me that is not all for you. So as we come into this new year, it is this desire for a consecrated life to Christ that I pray is at the forefront of each and every one of your own resolves for 2023. This is what your resolves must begin with. Consecrated to the Lord. Consecrated to Christ. That you might abide by the words of Christ to seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. If you were to lay out your list of resolutions that you've thought of, would they declare, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven? Would they sing, seek ye first the glory of self? Now hear me, brothers and sisters. There is nothing wrong with self-improvement. My goodness. I hope you are doing something to better yourself personally, whatever that may be. But does it flow out of a desire for more of Christ? Do you desire to be healthier so that you might live longer for His glory? That you might show that you are a good steward of Him who created and fashioned you in the womb? To be healthy, that you might live longer to spread the message of the gospel to your grandchildren and perhaps their children. That you might long to be a patriarch or matriarch of your family, to live a long life of healthy stewardship. If that is the goal, then amen. Do it for the glory of God. But let it flow first from a desire to be consecrated to Christ. To seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all these other things shall be added unto you. Our focus for 2023 is consecrated to Christ. And I could think of no better place to go, like I said, than Romans 12. Thought of some other ones originally, but my heart just moved to Romans 12. Chapter 12 begins a long section in Romans on Christian ethics. Basically from chapters 12 to chapters 15. It's just this long section of what is or what are Christian ethics. How should we live? What are the true marks of a Christian life? Now notice they are not standalone. They come after 11 other chapters. 11 chapters where Paul has detailed the glorious gospel of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. My friends, everyone has a set of ethics. And everyone's set of ethics is based upon their doctrine. There is no set of ethics that are not tied to a set of doctrines. Period. Now, we have tried to divorce that in our Western worldview to think that we can have Romans 12 through 15 without Romans 1 through 11. It doesn't work that way. You can't ride on the pillars that are not attached to a foundation. 
without it collapsing over and over again. And that's what you're seeing. What you're doing is you see a world in the West that is collapsing because it seeks to ride upon the pillars while removing the foundation. And any society that does that will collapse. So every doctrine drives our ethic. Throughout Romans 1-11, through Paul has laid out the glorious realities of the gospel. In Romans 1-3, through he makes very clear from the outset that the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness. And we are that unrighteousness. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one does what is right. No one seeks after God. Romans 1-3 through makes clear whether you are a blood-born Jew or a blood-born Gentile, you are born separated from a holy God because of the sinful nature that you've been born into. But God, who is rich in mercy, put Christ forward as a propitiation for our sins, a satisfaction. And Romans 4 through 5 makes clear that because of his perfect work on our behalf as a propitiatory sacrifice, that we can have peace with God on the basis of faith alone. That by believing upon him, it is counted to us righteousness just as it was with Abraham. And that we have been given peace with God because of the infinite mercy and love of Christ who died for us while we were still sinners. So as in Adam all die, now those who are in Christ shall live. Romans 6 through 7 gives this beautiful picture of sanctification and what a life that looks like transformed from the realities that we have been made dead to sin and alive in Christ through his salvation for us. Freed from the bondage of sin and the yoke of obtaining righteousness from the law. And that Christ has came to deliver us from this bondage of the flesh that we war with day after day. And then Romans 8. Oh, Romans 8. That pinnacle picture of the gospel which reveals how in Jesus, who has removed that bondage from us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that those who have come in Him by faith have now been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, able to walk upright lives in the Lord, not merely as servants, but as children who are able to now cry out to the Father who has adopted them, Abba, Father, a Father who loves them, who gives to them everything that they need. That's what you have in Christ. Estranged from God to now being a child of God. Whereby you have been made an heir with Christ. Ready to obtain a future inheritance of glory unfathomable. That nothing shall ever separate you from his love. Not principalities or powers, nor life, nor death, nor heights, nor lows shall ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you've been predestined to be conformed to his image. Those who he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorifies. And there are no dropouts in that glorious chain of redemption. When God put his will upon you to save you, there was no way you were going to fall out. When Christ put his loving, saving power upon you, indwelling you with the Holy Spirit, giving you new life, that new life was a guarantee of eternity to come. 
There are no dropouts in the golden chain of redemption. What God started in eternity past, He will care into eternity future. Oh, what glorious news. Unless you are not sure of that glorious reality, lest your heart be moved to pride, He then gives us Romans 9-11, to which gives God's glorious purpose of election. Showing that God's purpose of election in saving us was not based upon anything we did, but based upon everything that He is. His goodness, His mercy, His glory, His love is the reason you are saved. And nothing else. And that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be guaranteed of that salvation. For they have been grafted into Christ by faith and they will be forever given life, giving nourishment. But all who continue in unbelief will remain cut off and separated from the life-giving branch of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. And it moves Paul to closing with praise. Romans eleven thirty six 36 is how he closes. For from him... And through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now the reason that I have to give you all that background is because it's so important that you don't you understand that Romans 12 doesn't just fall out of the sky. Literally, look at the first verse again. I appeal to you therefore, brothers. What's the therefore, therefore? I appeal to you, therefore. In other words, I'm appealing to you because of everything that was just said. Because everything is to His glory. Because all things are from Him and to Him and through Him. Because of the glorious reality of what He has done for you and who He is for you. Therefore, I appeal to you. For Paul... Christian application must first flow from Christian adoration. Practice must flow from praise. Because if it doesn't, you'll be two things. One of two things. You'll either be a legalist or a moralist. A legalist is one who says you've got to do in order to obtain favor from God. You've got to do in order to obtain righteousness from God. But Romans 1-11 says, no you don't. You do this from the favor you've received in God. From the righteousness you've received from God. And the moralist says, I do this for the glory of self. Not for the glory of God. So that others might see how good of a person I am. How wonderful I am. How nice I am. And Romans 1 through 11 says, you can't do any of this apart from him to begin with. So if you just start with Romans 12, forget like Romans 1 11 aren't there, you'll think God is a harsh taskmaster instead of a loving Father who has perfectly set you up for victory. Or you'll just make yourself a moralist. Looking and longing for self-glory, but not God's glory. Praise be to God, we have Romans 1 through 11. But neither one of those are my concerns for Hillside Baptist Church. I'm not worried about anybody in here being a legalist. 
And I'm not worried about anyone being a moralist. One of the key principles that we've established here at Hillside Baptist Church is that we will be a doctrinal church. That we will build ourselves upon the precepts of the Word of God and nothing less and nothing more. We have built a strong and biblical and doctrinal foundation and we will continue to do so. So long as there is breath in my lungs and I'm still here. We will be a biblical doctrinal church. And I, believe, and I pray that as you, your heart says, as long as I'm here, we will be as well. Because that is not the task of one man or two men or five men. It's the task of the entire church to be built upon a biblical and doctrinal foundation. So my worry, does not, my worry is not about you guys just divorcing Romans 1 through 11 from chapter 12. My biggest concern is that we never get out of Romans 1 through 11 and get to 12. My biggest concern is that we build our towers high and fortified upon chapters 1 through 11, but never leave them for chapter 12. To never actually build a bridge to anywhere, but instead surround this place with a moat. Say that world won't get in here. And we make sure we'll make sure we don't get out there either. That was the Ephesian curse. And it won't be here at Hillside. A church that grows our minds towards God, but never stretches our hearts towards others. Lord, don't let us be that way. Because the Lord gave a warning to Ephesus in Revelation. I'll take your lamp away. This was the most doctrinally astute church there was. And they had to be. It was full. They they lived in an environment full of false teachers. They had to be doctrinally established and fortified. But in their fortifications, they became so tight, so closed in. They had no heart for witness. No heart for the world. And the Lord says, you don't want to be a light to the world. I'll take it away. Take it away. And I refuse to let him take it away. I want to live for him. Now I'm not elevating one over the other. I'm saying that according to scripture, both are vital for Christian living. Paul didn't end the letter at 11. He gave a great praise. He could have stopped it. Nor did he start it with 12. Both are necessary for Christian life. I want us to be biblical, not just in our doctrine, but in our doing. Not just in Scripture. Not just in our statements of faith. But in our service of faith. I want us to resolve as a church that our adoration for the knowledge of the glories of Christ will pour out into an abundance of action for the glory of Christ. That you learn and your mind is so captivated by the glories of God, the grace of God, the mercies of God, the knowledge of God, that your hands and feet can't help but move Monday through Saturday. That your heart can't help but be poured out to others Monday through Saturday. 
that all that we are, not just all that we know, will be dedicated to all that he is and all that he wills for us to be and do both individually and corporately. And Romans 12 gives us an inspired picture of what the consecrated life looks like. Here's the main point of this New Year's message. In light of their glorious salvation, every Christian, every Christian should firmly resolve to perpetually surrender to Christ all that they are, to faithfully serve the body of Christ with the gifts that they have, and to daily reflect the image of Christ in all that they do. And in spite of all the other resolutions that you've made this year, let these three be at the forefront. Because I believe that these are the three resolutions that are fitting for living sacrifices. So let's look at those one at a time. First, resolved to perpetually surrender to Christ all that I am. Notice, I put resolved there in a past tense. And the reason why I put that there is because when you leave this place, this should be good as done. Jonathan Edwards, at the age of 17, wrote 70 resolutions. Every one of them beginning with resolved. Go read them sometime. They're powerful. But the reality of it is I'm not giving myself a back door. This will be done in my life. Resolved. Not be, I'll be resolved or I'm going to make some resolutions. No. Resolved. It's done to perpetually surrender to Christ all that I am. It's good as done this morning. Let it be good as done this morning. The opening verses here, verses 1 through 2, we read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. These opening verses provide the basis for everything else that follows. You're called to be a living sacrifice. Therefore, everything else that flows from this is an outpouring of what an all surrendered life looks like. Notice how Paul begins, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Not the judgment of God. Why? Because we're not legalists. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. In other words, what should be the primary mover of your action? The mercies of God. The realities of everything that God has done for you should move you to being all and everything that you can be for Him. I'm not doing this to be right with Him. I'm doing this because I'm right with Him. Because of everything that He has lavished upon me day after day in new mercy, I want to live for Him day after day. I want to give all that I am to Him because He's given all that He has to me. All that God is in Christ has been given to you. He's held nothing back from you. And yet you so often find yourself in a, in a match trying to give what you can and, take what, and keep what you can. Oh Lord, I'll give you a little bit today. But I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm hurting. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. That person's boring. He's tired. I'm old. I'm tired of hearing him. I don't want to help those people. I don't want to work with them. 
I sure hope that when Jesus sent out the twos, the, the disciples two by two, I wonder what it would have been like if had he put the zealot, James, with Matthew, the tax collector. You thought about that? Or Simon with Judas. Maybe they didn't know. I think Simon and Judas were a lot alike, actually. They both had a problem. They both often flew by the seat of their pants and wanting to do something right, but often to their own downfall. One of them was restored by grace, the other not. There's going to be plenty of times you may not want to do something, feel tired, you feel whatever, but the call is to look to the mercies of God. Look at what He's done for you. And say, oh God, that I might live for you. That I might not grow. That, that in the midst of this, right? In the midst of this frustration or exhaustion or whatever it is that I'm facing that I'm trying to use as an excuse to keep from going and acting and doing for you because there always will be one. God, I need to look to your mercy. And thank God you didn't make excuses for saving me. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when he says body there, he's not talking about just physical, right? Even though that is a part of it. That word body there is literally meant to, under, to denote all that you are. Present all that you are to him. Not just your spirit, and you can do whatever you want with your body. That's what the Gnostics taught. No, all of you, physical and spiritual, is to be given over as a sacrifice to God. Now, this is ritual language that's being used here. And the reason why that's important is because when a sacrifice was offered in the Bible, when an animal sacrifice was given, all of it was used. There was no part of the sacrifice left over for other purposes. When an animal was sacrificed, every bit of it, from its blood to its entrails to its flesh, was used for the purpose of offering to God. There was nothing left over. All of it was to be given to Him. None wasted and left for vain purposes. It's all His. It's all His. But when a sacrifice was offered up, it was dead. It was used up. Thrown out. Wasted. There was nothing left for it. Praise be to God, you are not called a dead sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice. Oh God, praise be to God that you've been made alive. You are alive in Christ Meaning day after day, you can be presented to the offer of God. That all of you can be used up. And there will be more tomorrow. And there will be more the next day. And there will be more the next day. Because you're a living sacrifice, not a dead one. He may use all of you today. Or just some of you. But I assure you, He will give you more for tomorrow. And then again, you are to present it all to Him. Whether he should use it all or just a little for that day. No, the call will be to lay it all down again tomorrow. And you can do so because you've been made alive. Alive in Christ. Daily, you can surrender all that you are in light of all of his new mercies for you. 
That's why you don't have to hold anything back. Because you know there'll be new mercy tomorrow. I, I don't, I don't got to hold back today. I don't got to, to, to hold on. I, I don't need to be a, a prepper in the Christian life. I'm not talking about the world. I'm saying you don't need to store away your spiritual giftings, your spiritual callings in the storehouse when you know God's going to provide new ones tomorrow. Yesterday's mercies are gone. Today's mercies are new. Tomorrow, today's mercies won't be there. But there'll be new mercy. And you'll have to present yourself a living sacrifice again. But what's also wonderful to me is that we are not only the sacrifice, but we are the offerer. Here we reflect Christ, who is both the sacrifice and the priest. And the fact that we are to offer denotes the fact that each and every one of us has been given a priesthood in Christ. This is not what this Peter, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So your priestly duty is to do what? Offer sacrifices. And who's the sacrifice? You are. You, you are to daily present all that you are to all that he is, knowing he'll give you exactly the mercy he needed to fulfill it and to do it again tomorrow. When a priest offered a sacrifice, it was a picture of him surrendering his rights of the sacrifice to the Lord. It was a picture of him surrendering ownership to God. It was handing over to God and saying, it all belongs to you. Brothers and sisters, do you not know that you were bought with an infinite price with the blood of Christ and you are not your own? You are not your own. You are not your own. You don't get to define yourself. You don't get to rule yourself. You don't get to think what's best for yourself. God does. You are not your own. You have been bought with the infinite price of the blood of Christ. And when you lay down yourself as a living sacrifice, you are perpetually surrendering the reality that, Lord, it all belongs to you anyways. It all belongs to you anyways. Every part of me belongs to you anyways. My rights must be surrendered to his rule. And in the Western world where rights mean everything, we get it. Our whole foundation is built on that. The Christian worldview says, yes, but all of my rights are surrendered to his rule. That's why Romans 14 exists in Christian liberty, because my rights are surrendered to his rule. Now, a proper sacrifice is to be holy and acceptable, we're told here. And we have become both of these things through our redemption in Christ. We are now both holy and acceptable to God. Why? Because no longer when God sees us does he see blemishes and stains. He sees the overflowing righteousness of Christ. So we have been made presentable sacrifices to the Lord through the righteousness of Christ. However, that set-apartness is supposed to be maintained Throughout our lifestyle, which is why verse two exists. Do not be conformed to the world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have been set apart by Christ and for Christ. And as such, we are to day by day transform and conform ourselves to His image, not the image of the world. And how do we do that? Paul says, by transforming ourselves through the renewing of our mind. Well, how do you do that? Where does the renewal of the mind come from? Two things. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. Both working together. The Spirit of God doesn't work divorced from the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't work divorced from the Spirit of God. They work together to renew our mind, to conform us to the image of Christ, so that we can properly understand through testing what is the good and acceptable will of God, right? What is the will of God? We need to know that. We need to follow the will of God, not the ways of the world. The only way to do that is to have our minds transformed. He says that we do this by testing. What does that mean? I think this is what it means. That daily, you and I endure the testing of temptations and trials. Every day. Every day you endure The testing of temptations and trials. And we are called to have our minds renewed by God in such a way that we can know the will of God in order to rightly present ourselves as living sacrifices in the way we respond to that given situation. And so my mind is transformed So that no matter what situation I'm put in, no matter what test is brought before me, no matter what temptation comes, what trial comes, my mind has been renewed in such a way that I can rightly present myself as a living sacrifice in this moment because I know what God's will for me is in the midst of this temptation or trial. He is faithful to make a way, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. All temptation is common to man. But God is faithful to make a way of escape. Well, how do you know the way of escape? You know the will of the one who makes it. He passes it through by the transforming of our mind. In life, you will be aimless, stagnant, fruitless, lacking in content if you are not experiencing the richness of God's will. If you are led by the ways of the world, you will be left wondering, never fixed and firm and convicted like you are when you are grounded in the will of God. And that's important because what this means is that all the things that we are about to see in the rest of the chapter, chapter in verses three through verse 21, is that all of those those aspects, those ethics that we are called to, those practices that we are called to put into action, that they are to be done in a way that reflects the will of God, not in a way that reflects the desires of the world. So my love, my kindness, my hospitality is not to be done in a way that's conformed with the manner of the world. It's to be done in a way that is transformed by the will of God. So my love, my hospitality, my compassion, my forgiveness, my benevolence, my care, all of those things will look radically different than what the world says they should look like. But they still should be there. The way we live is to be a reflection of the will of God, not the ways of the world. 
So this coming new year, be resolved to day by day, employ your body and mind to the one who created it and your soul to the one who redeemed it. Secondly, resolved to faithfully serve the body of Christ with the gifts that I have. Verse 3 through 8. Paul now turns from the individual to the individual life in the light of the body of Christ. Verse 3 through 8. Quickly here. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do all have the same function. So we, though, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Right. So Paul here makes a few things very clear as he starts pointing us now to what our life should look like. In the body of Christ and how we should be resolved to live within the body of Christ. First, he makes very clear that every gift, talent, strength or skill that you have is a gift of God's grace. Every gift, talent, strength you have is a gift of God's grace. He literally opens by saying that I'm speaking literally by the grace given to me. He's talking about his apostolic gifting here. I'm speaking to you literally because God has given me the grace to speak these things to you. Everything I have for you is because he gave it first to me by his grace. When you serve the body of Christ, you are an overflow of God's grace to them. Not just you. So when you don't serve the body of Christ, you are actually robbing grace from others. What did Paul say in in Corinthians? We were downcast and we were detestable. But God who comforts the downcast and broken did so by sending Titus. Titus was God's instrument of mercy. And if Titus hadn't come, that was a part of the grace of God that he had given to the church at Corinth that would have been missing. So it is to you when you aren't here, when you don't serve, when you don't embrace the fullness of the gifts God's given you to the body he has brought you into. Paul recognizes everything he has to offer the people of God is from the grace of God. And so should we. And this does two things. First, it should drive you to complete humility. This is why he says, let no one think more highly of himself than they ought to. Why? Because every gift you have is not your own development. It's not your own doing. It's from the gift. It's a gift of God. You don't get to boast on whatever gift you have, whether it's teaching or nursery work, whatever it is, it's a gift from God. And you don't get to hold yourself higher than the next. Because every part is vitally necessary to the health and function of the body. Every part of it. So you don't get to say, well, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher. Get down on your knees and surrender to Christ. Pour that pride out. There's no place for it. Let the greatest of you be the servant. Let the last be first and the first last. My friends, as the body of Christ, we can never elevate one person or gifting over the other. 
We can only elevate the Lord who gives them. That's what you do with giftings. You don't elevate yourself. You elevate the God who gave them. And you do it by making much of him through your service. However, there's another side to this that Paul wants us also to empathize. And that is the danger of one who does not look upon their gifting highly, but rather looks upon it lowly. You know, I'm not I'm not very smart. I don't don't teach good. I don't pray well. I just don't feel like I memorize scripture well. I'm nobody. Paul says, don't you dare neglect the grace of God that way. Because you have a gift. And that gift may be service. It may be compassion. It may be encouragement. And God says, I gave that to you. Don't you dare neglect it. Don't you dare say that's bad. Don't you dare envy someone else's. You stop it. You are not less than. You are absolutely vital to the health, the growth, and the advancement of the body of Christ. Without you, the body is not complete. We're not here. We are lacking. Hear me in all of this. Christ doesn't need you. But we do. But we do. I do. I need you. I need you to be what God has set apart, set you apart to be. And to give gifts that I don't have so that we can be the church that he's created us to be. Christ does not need you. He wanted you. He chose you. He called you. He saved you. But I need you. We need you. So don't you hold back your giftings. Don't you neglect the body for lack of feeling inferior. Because you are not if you are in Christ. Your gifting is from the Lord and who has given it according to the measure of faith. Now, this is another place where this has gone wrong. So often we hear this measure of faith as being used as a description of the amount of faith you have. Wrong. That's not what this text says. This text doesn't say you don't have prophecy or preaching or teaching or exhortation because you have less faith. Wrong. When it says the measure of faith. What it's talking about is the way in which Christ has allotted or proportioned the giftings, distributing it throughout his body. You see, in Christ, there is the fullness of grace and truth. And he proportionately disperses that fullness amongst the different parts of his body. That's what it means by the measure of faith. That measure comes from the fullness of Christ. Not your faith. The faith. He has given each of us a a measure of the faith that is found fully in him so that we can serve in the part of his body that he's placed you. That's what that means. This is not about how much faith you have or don't have. It's about knowing that whatever God's given you, there's a purpose for it. That he's put you in a place for a reason, giving you a gifting for a reason. To find it and use it. For his body and his people. Without a specific part, brothers and sisters, 
We may function, but we are not healthy. There's a lot of churches who are operating and functioning, but we're not healthy. Because they're gifts that are not being used. They're organs that have grown still. Every single soul of the, in the body of Christ is a vital organ. That causes it to speak and move and act and care and love and build and grow. And notice, he says, we're not just members of the body of Christ, but individually we are members one of another. That's important. Because that protects us from pride. It protects us from envy, from slothfulness, from resentment, and from anger towards someone else's gifting. Why? Because you can celebrate the gifting of your brother and sister because it's been given for you. I love when I see people using and embracing their gifts for God, whatever it is, whether it's teaching, service, compassion, love, care, encouragement, whatever it is, mercy, whatever that gifting may be. Why? Because I know it's for me. It's for you. That's why I don't get prideful when I'm like, man, I wish I could forgive like that. I wish I could have the encouragement and encourage people the way that Barnabas does. I wish I could lead in the manner of Paul. I wish I could have the just total go and hold nothing back and face all my fears the way Timothy does. And I don't. I don't have that. But I have you and you help me. You help me. You help each other. That's why I need you. We need you. Your gifts have been given to lift up and build up the whole body. Don't waste it. Don't loiter your walk for Christ. David Brainerd. Don't loiter it. Don't get rid of it. Don't just waste it. Use it mightily for the body of Christ. Whatever gift you've been given, use it. Whether it's gift of prophecy, which is preaching. And I love what he says they're in proportion to our faith. This shows us that he's not talking about foretelling the future. When he says prophesy in proportion to our faith, he's literally saying preach or foretell in accordance to the word. It's the analogy of faith. Preach in light of the revealed truth of Scripture. That's what preachers do, right? Preachers foretell and explain God's will from the word. Then there are teachers. Service, exhortation, that's encouraging others, giving, leadership, zeal, or passion and mercy. These are not all the gifts. This is not a comprehensive list. What Paul is simply saying is, God's given you a gift, church. Use it. Use it. Now, we are blessed in this church. Because overwhelmingly, you use it. And it's felt. But if you're afraid and you've been holding back, don't be. Could you imagine what the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm talking universal now, the impact it would have if every Christian bought into the gifts they've been given by grace and used them for His glory. Oh, what that would be. Let's start with us, church. The life of the church is not about being spectators of men, but servants of Christ. It is not about entertainment, but engagement. It is not a once a week commitment, but a loving, discipling, life changing covenant community. So faithfully resolve to serve the body of Christ with the gifts that you have. Lastly, rapid fire here. 
This is shotgun blast. This is a machine gun preacher moment here. But we're just going to rapid fire these glorious realities of what Paul now calls us to do. He now gives us this thirdly. This is your third resolution. Resolved to daily reflect the image of Christ in all that I do. In all that I do. Here, Paul now shifts from the gifts of the Spirit to what will be the fruit of the Spirit. This is now the gifts we saw in the church to fruits. What should be out towards others? So we've seen our relationship to Christ individually, our relationship to Christ in the church, and now our relationship to Christ outwardly towards the world. That's what this is moving outward from here. And it's to daily reflect the image of Christ in all that I do. So we'll just look at these one at a time. The first thing we are called to do is reflect His love. Verse 9 and 10. He says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. My friend, love is to be genuine. Literally, not hypocritical. Meaning... That when you love, you love without any thought to personal gain. So often we love like hired workers, only loving to receive in return, only loving when we know there will be a reward, when we know there will be a reciprocation. We don't love like hired workers. We love like Christ. When there is no promise of reciprocation, when there is no promise of love in return, we love regardless of it. We love like Christ. My friends, we could give nothing to Christ in return, yet He loved us and died for us. We reflect Him. We are called to love those even who hate us. Those who will never reward us. Those who have nothing to give us. Love is the preeminent action of the Christian life, which is why we shouldn't be shocked that it's the first thing here. Paul's triad, faith, hope, and love. But faith will cease. Hope will be no more when Christ returns. But love will remain. Love is the ever-present. Love always is and always will be. And love should, we should lead with love in all that we do. And the only thing that we are called to abhor, that is to hate, is evil. Is evil. We lead with love and we hate what's evil. Once again, Paul's saying there, your love needs to be informed by the will of God. David Brainerd wrote this, No amount of scholastic attainment of able and profound exposition of brilliant and stirring eloquence can atone for the absence of a deep, impassioned, sympathetic love for human souls. Oh, lead with love. Reflect His love. The first epistle of John makes clear that if the love of Christ is not in you, neither is the Spirit of Christ. Reflect His love to the world that needs to know what real love looks like. What biblical love looks like. Reflect His love. Secondly, reflect His zeal. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I love this. Be zealous, be fervent, be passionate about your walk in Christ. Do you moan and groan about church? Do you moan and groan about the people in your church to people who are outside of Christ? Be zealous, be passionate about what you get to do for Christ. Get excited. Make it feel like you've actually experienced the God of the universe. 
And you know the way to stir up zeal, Paul says? Serve the Lord. Because what happens when you serve, even when you don't want to, you see the results of Christ. You see the work of Christ. And when you see Christ at work, doesn't it make you passionate? Doesn't it make you excitement to see excited, to see souls saved, lives changed, all because of Christ? So if you're struggling with zeal and passion, serve the Lord. You'll see Him work in mighty ways. Thirdly, you need to reflect His patience. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I love this. Be patient. Wait. Stand fast. Hold tight to what you have. Be patient. Your redemption, your final redemption will come. Don't try to take it into your own hands. And the key to patience, Paul says, is prayer. Prayer is the key to patience. When you're struggling with a child, pray. When you're struggling in your marriage, pray. When you're tired at work, pray. The measure of our perseverance in the midst of tribulation is directly directly proportionate to the measure that we spend in prayer. If you want to endure faithfully in tribulation and trial, spend time in prayer. Prayer is the key to patience. When the Lord found himself in the darkest hour of tribulation, where did he go? He prayed. He went to pray. Because what does prayer do? Prayer allows you to go, not my will, but thine be done. Prayer is not about changing the will of God. It's about changing your will to his. And it makes you patient. Because you know his promises for you are good. And hope and glory awaits you. We have a hope. And therefore, we can be patient like Christ. For we are to reflect his compassion. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Be compassionate. James says in the second chapter of James, how can you say you have faith? And yet when someone comes to you to meet with need, you just say, well, I'll be praying for you, basically. And off with their way. I wish the best for you. So often our first response when someone comes to us in need is, well, I'll be praying for you. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with prayer. I just gave a big totem for it. Like, hey, pray. But how often our first response, it's visceral. It's not sincere. I'll be praying for you. When you might actually be the answer to a prayer. That you might actually have the the means to meet that need. That God might have just sent that person to you for the purpose of compassion and hospitality. Show the compassion of Christ. Oh, I'm so thankful Christ showed us compassion. And met needs that we could not. Five, we are to reflect his forgiveness. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. That's hard. And the only way to do it is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Whatever you're holding on to right now, whatever grudge, it's got to go. Don't you go into this new year holding grudges from the last. Stop staying in bondage. Forgiveness is primarily for you, not for others. Because it frees you to love. It frees you to move forward. But if you won't forgive, you're no better than the ones that cursed you. Because you're doing the same in your heart. Six, reflect his sympathy. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. God, have a heart. 
So this is have a heart. If people are excited, celebrate with them. If you see that new believer who's excited about what he's learning about Jesus and he's a little bit off on his theology, don't just kill him. Don't just kill him in the moment. I promise you, if any of you saw your first theology thoughts, you'd all be going, good gosh, what's wrong with me? You need grace to grow. Don't kill people. So when they're excited, rejoice with them. Don't be the killjoy of every party. Those who are weeping have a heart. Weep with them. Christ knew he was about to raise Lazarus. And he wept when he saw the mourning of those sisters. He didn't say, what's wrong with you? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know you're supposed to be stoic? Oh, he wept. It's because he had a heart. Not everything needs your theologizing the first moment. Sometimes you just need to sit and weep with someone. Sometimes there are no answers. Sometimes tears and a holding hand speaks louder than a thousand words. Sympathy this year. Seven, reflect this humility. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We've already talked about this. Be humble. All you are is because of the grace of God. So you've got no reason to boast or be better than anyone else. The only thing that separates you from the darkest sinner is the grace of God. So be humble. Be humble enough to serve wherever He calls you. There is no gutter too low that you can't be called to serve in for Christ. Reflect His peace. First, I'll just jump to verse 18 here. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, Notice, this is not about conformity. This isn't about wicked toleration. There are going to be sometimes, no matter what you do, there will be no peace. But you are called to live for peace. Christ could have raised countless armies to destroy, and he'd have been righteous in doing so. He could have turned his sword on those who sought to hurt him, and he'd have been rightful in doing so. But we are called to bring peace. Why? Because we belong to the Prince of Peace. Are you someone who agitates conflict or seeks to resolve it? Can you be constantly trusted to be brought in as a mediator by your friends and family? Are you one who just adds to the fire? Resolve to reflect His peace. Lastly, resolve to reflect His trust. Verse 19-21 Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you know why Christ could surrender to death? Because it said he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, his father. He knew the Father would vindicate him. He knew that he would have victory because of the faithfulness of his Father. And my friends, I want you to know today, you don't need to get revenge. You don't need to get even. Trying to get even only gets you in the negative. 
you can entrust yourself to the God who judges justly. And because you know vengeance belongs to the Lord, it frees you to love. Because this is our victory. Not by matching the world's, effort, the world's efforts with the world's efforts. But by matching the evil of the world with the good of Christ. And the only way to do that is to trust Him. That no matter what, He will make all things right. So overcome evil with good. Don't fight fire with fire. Fight the fires of this world with the water of the Spirit. Overcome evil with good. My friends, I close with this. Be resolved. These three resolutions for living sacrifices. Here we go. These are the ones. Write them on your heart. Resolved. Perpetually surrender to Christ all that I am. Resolved. Faithfully to serve the body of Christ with the gifts that I have. Resolved. Daily reflect the image of Christ in all that I do. But brothers and sisters, be ready. If you resolve these things, don't be surprised if suddenly and unexpectedly these opportunities literally come knocking on your door. God has a way of making us put our money where our mouth is. It's okay. Because He does so because He wants you to see the glory of His work and the goodness of His mercy in a way that you can't see apart from living for Him. Another year is dawning. Dear Master, let it be. In working or awaiting another year with Thee, another year of mercies, of faithfulness and grace, another year of gladness and the shining of Your face, another year of progress, another year of praise, another year of proving Your presence all the days, another year of service, of witness of Your love, Another year of training for holier work above. Another year is dawning. Dear Master, let it be. On earth or else in heaven. Another year for Thee. Whether it be good days or bad days. Sunny days or stormy clouds. May you all sing with your heart this year. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated unto Thee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this new year. We thank you for your new mercies. We thank you for the abundance of your grace. And we pray, God, that you will pour into us all that you've called us to be. That in your mercy, in your grace, that you will empower us to day by day surrender all that we are to you. To present ourselves living sacrifices, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, that we will faithfully serve the gifts, uh, serve the body of Christ with the gifts that you've given us. That we will in no way ever look pridefully or lowly on the gifts you've given us, but see them as an abundance of your grace and mercy, which has been given to us to use to bless others with. And that, 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 that we should go and serve. So God, I pray that if there's someone there, Lord, who today is, is wandering and desiring to know what their gifts are, God, that you would pour in their heart a knowledge of what they are, that you would pour in them a desire to serve you, that they might come to know exactly what it is that you have set them apart to be and to do within your body. And lastly, God, help us daily reflect Christ to this world 
Oh God, what this world needs more than anything else is Jesus. It doesn't need politics. It doesn't need better economics. It just needs Jesus. He sets all things right. He sets all things sure and new. So God, let us go not just being speakers of Christ, but imitators of Him. Let all that our life be consecrated to Him. Let us hold nothing back. Lord, let us build our life upon Christ and nothing else. He is worthy of it all. Let us live for Him as He lived and died for us. Let us be consecrated to You. God, give it all. Take it all. Use it for Your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.